For AZPM, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, an interview with music legend Kid Congo Powers. Meet the filmmaker behind A Tale of Two Houses, a homegrown documentary about Tucson's unstoppable 80s punk music scene. And learn how the town of Bisbee is creating more nature-friendly habitats in cooperation with the Arizona Wildlife Federation and how you can participate. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. One of the featured performers at this year's Hotel Congress Festival may not be a household name, but he was there for many important milestones in punk and new wave music. Known for collaborating with Jeffrey Lee Pierce in The Gun Club from 1979 to 1996, Kid Congo Powers currently leads the Pink Monkey Birds, and he'll play at Hoko Fest 2023 on Sunday, September 3rd. Here is Andrew Brown with an interview that was inspired by his reading Kid Congo Power's autobiography, Some New Kind of Kick. Can you tell me why you wanted to write this book? It was two things. One was that a friend of mine had uh, was putting out some solo records of mine way back in the early 2000s, like 2000, and he compiled this um, long uh, career-spanning interview, life-spanning interview, really, and he put it online, and he was putting out my records because uh, he was like, you know, Kid Congo, people people don't know that, you know, they know you've been in the gun club, they know you've been in the cramps, they know you played with Nick Cave, but they don't know, a lot of people don't know you did all of those things. When he was done, I was like, oh, this is an outline for a book. And then uh, about 12 years later, I finished it. <laughs> you were also uh, not just being involved in the punk rock scene, but also um, being gay and being queer at the forefront of that kind of being socially acceptable and part of the mainstream, what role did punk rock and these kind of subcultures play in coming out? It was a, a real in and out of the closet type of thing. Uh, but it was like, you know, like I said, I came from glam rock, David Bowie, Ziggy Stardust, and and all that came in its wake, you know, really gave license to, if you were a young kid and you suspected or knew that you were a queer kid, that. You know, that was your ticket, you know, and such a great identification, especially with David Bowie, because not only was he a glamorous, um, androgynous, uh, hedonistic rock star, he was also an alien from outer space. Another theme of the book is addiction and um, substance abuse. Is it just perception or does do those things like happen to coincide with musicians a lot? <laughs> As it would appear, it happens to coincide. Um, sex, drugs, and rock and roll is a is a, is a cliche, um, but there's a reason cliches are cliches, and that's because there's some truth in them. For me, someone who doesn't know how to express themselves in any other kind of way, you know, music, you know, playing loud music uh, was it was a, a definite 
communication and expression. This for me, it started slower, where like, okay, it's time to do the work, like make a record or write music, and I, you can stop and do it. But then, it, and then, you know, oh, the record's done, it's like vacation time. And, um, but that led to, you know, full on addiction. You know, there's just no way to take drugs and not get addicted, I don't think. You know, or not for me, definitely, or many people I know. With the Gun Club, well, Jeffrey's not on Earth anymore, but um, that was kind of the most, for me, one of the more important characters um, because we had worked together for so long, and he's the first person who put a guitar in my hand. And, and you know, and I do, can say I played the very first Gun Club ever show and the very last one. The most touching part of the entire book for me was your relationship with Jeffrey and the continued relationship with him, despite the fact that it, it, a lot of times it seemed like a total train wreck and it would be really challenging. I understood our chemistry musically and personally. I thought he was a visionary. Quite often, he was the wreck and... It wasn't something he was doing to me, you know. It was something he was doing to himself, and it was hard to watch. I just believed in him, you know. In a way, he believed in me. Yeah, and you can't get all those benefits that you had without dealing with the negative. And I, I think sometimes... Mm -hmm. We just have too high of standards for people. <laughs> exactly. I just didn't think of it. I thought about the art and the work first. And is that great? And if that's great, and if 10 people buy it, it's great. And if 100,000 people buy it, even better. I didn't have any sour grapes about, uh, about my career being you know, ruined or not being the next REM or the next U2 or whoever people expected us to be. Oftentimes, the portrait of some very famous people that you're portraying in the book is not necessarily the most flattering. Um, uh, what was the reception like, and are you still friends with all the people you were friends with before the book came out? <laughs> yeah, no one, no one is not talking to me. <laughs> it was a, kind of scary talking about the cramps because they're very secretive, and I didn't want to step on that uh, sacredness that they put towards their image and the way they guarded their own personal magic. When the sun goes down and the moon comes up. So that was a little bit scary. So I just really approached it from what I what happened to me and and what I saw and what I did with them. You remember the cramps in 1981 when the song Goo Goo Muck came out. Um, that was used in a very popular Netflix series Wednesday recently. One, like, what did you think about that? And two, like, how, has, has it had any effect on your life? First, I thought it was amazing. You know, it's like, oh, Tim Burton knows who we are. Teenagers are loving this. Jenna Ortega's dance, Wednesday's dance. Uh, which was amazing. And 
what could not be great about that because that was a teenage anthem you know when we did it in 1980 but you know some teenagers liked it but now on mass i had friends calling me from scotland friends writing me from france saying like finally i'm cool with my kids now because they saw that wednesday i said i know the guitar player on that but that was one of the first songs I ever recorded in a first time in a recording studio. So it was even, it's even a little more special to me because it was like, oh, my very first effort is now a viral, uh, <laughs> a viral thing. I'm a teenage tiger looking for a beast. Kid Congo Powers will play on Sunday, September 3rd on the club stage as part of the 2023 Hotel Congress Festival. Another aspect of HokoFest 2023 is the world debut of a film that could only be made in Tucson. A Tale of Two Houses documents the birth and evolution of the local punk music and alternative art scene. It was centered around two notorious houses on Speedway that became a home away from home for a generation. The filmmaker and musician who created this unique documentary is Chris Carlone. I had moved back to Tucson a couple of years ago um, during COVID from New York City. And upon my return, I was driving down Speedway, drove by the houses. I um, saw this giant stack of student housing that was right next to the houses where Greasy Tony's used to be. I realized that these houses probably won't be around much longer and the importance of the houses. And, and thinking to myself, there's so much history in these houses and they were so important for five years or something to young people in Tucson. And now probably no one even knows like when they're walking by the houses. And I thought it would be really fun to make a short film, which is what I thought I was making at first, um, to tell the story of what happened in these houses. And so I wanted to put it on the map before they were taken off the map. So the era we're talking about is pre-internet when alternative music, which I've always hated that phrase, but mm -hmm. was, was really becoming a thing in culture. And the kids who were following this culture were dressing differently and looking differently than the generations before them. And these two houses side by side, 818 and 814, both became kind of party centers. And we can't talk about them without talking about Dave. Oh, so much to say about Dave. David is a brilliant man. He is a, a go-getter. Like he is a person who wants to create something. And he absolutely did that. 
in the film, he talks about his roommate who was more of the social guy who sort of was able to sort of get the parties going. But David was able to create something that people wanted to come back to. That An he, environment. An environment. He could create something that you usually didn't walk into when you went to a house party. He made it so that he didn't have to deal with selling the beer. He took an old Coke machine and filled it with beer and made it into a beer machine. So now when you've got a band playing in your living room, you just keep the machine stocked with beer and all the kids keep coming back. Um, <laughs> he put pinball machines in his house. He put video games in his house. He drove an old 59 Cadillac hearse. He was a character. What was unique and, and special about the place was David. There probably would be no movie without David because it, it all started with him. And um, it's been really fun to spend time with him and, and get to talk about what was going on and how he was able to, to make this a, a unique experience for people. Students could have their own places so they didn't have to live in the dorms. And there were a lot of party houses the cops were rather lenient. It was just kind of a place where, especially in the summertime, you could just do about anything and it didn't really matter. But you also have interviews with the people who were participating, including Dave, as they are now in their 50s, maybe 60s. What do you have to say about talking to these people now about something that happened so long ago? They all have a golden gleam in their eye. They remember this time very well. This film was a real honor to make because I think it made some people uncomfortable. Most people don't want to live in the past or some people thought they weren't going to remember anything. And they all sat down and they all, things started coming and that opened up something else and they remembered something else. It really felt like an honor for them to open up to me about their experiences and to be there to receive it and, and experience their stories and to share, share it with the world kicking back at Greasy Tony's, eating a trash can, and then we'd hear this music next door. It felt like it was our private place, right? At night, when bars closed and they would still be open, and you could just walk over, we'd all be over there. You know, like a whole party full of people all buying food from Greasy Tony's. Most of us were vegetarian, as I remember. Like, a punk rock thing in the 80s was definitely to be a vegetarian. So I for sure remember when the parties would die down. Definitely remember having like girlfriends sit down and review whatever happened at the party that night. Someone is quoted, I think it might be Dave, as saying if you were paying more than 150 in rent, that was ridiculous right. in 1986, seven. Exactly. That freedom extended into creativity and Tucson became a hotbed of music. Oh, sure. UPS, The Johnnies, What Went Wrong, Opinion Zero, Blood Spasm, River Roses, Los Hamsters. Everyone's so excited about Los Hamsters. There was no <laughs> recordings yeah. of that band. And I was so lucky to, um, to get a recording from Nino's, uh, which was a club back then, from the guitarist, Linda Andes. She, she was able to dig up an old tape and it I would, it sounded so good. I was like, I would press this to vinyl now. It sounds so great. And as a musician first, I have asked myself, would this be interesting to me? Because there's no bands in this movie that anyone has heard of unless you were there. Would this be interesting to me? And I truly believe all of these bands are really interesting and 
really unique and it made me kind of really realize wow i mean i always kind of knew it but it was neat to put it all together because it really makes you realize the tucson sound is so unique and and i think people that see the movie that that ha weren't there i think that they will be trying to find these bands and and i think it will create interest you also were lucky in that so many artifacts from that time exist. I mean, there's the, the hand-drawn artwork from the people who were involved, the flyers for the bands, but really the birth of community cable and the show called Electric Window was something that lasted for a period of time where people who were at 818 were actually videotaping and broadcasting concerts that were happening there. I, I can only imagine about how the neighbors dealt with this. But you have a really fascinating story about how the police actually came to the aid of 818 at one point. I think that that is the perfect uh, example of what a different time it was back then than it is now. I feel like that could that would never happen now, you know? There was a show um, that ran for about four years called The Twit Show. And one of the people that was the... Um, director of the show, Charles Alfred Brown. He had the idea for a Halloween show to have the punk rock band UPS play in the streets on Congress Street, right in front of the old Fox Theater, which at that time was was empty. And and there was rocks and holes in the sign that above. And, and it turned out to be like a hugely attended event. There were so many people there slam dancing in the streets. And it was broadcast live on community cable and so many people saw it that they went down there and the sheriff actually found out about it called in to make sure everything was all right and then went down there and instead of shutting the the show down he actually barricaded the street so cars wouldn't try to drive through and so people could dance and people would be safe so yeah the fact that the police were actually protecting the mosh pit Welcome once again to a special live edition of Electric Window. You're on Channel 64, Macaw Cable Vision. Is this a commercial break? Yes. We, no, this is special edition of Electric Window live from the 818 Club. Tonight we have the Johnnies, the Deadbolts, Al Perry, and the Cryptics. The size of the community and the size of the university at that time was just big enough that there'd be people to get to know, people to meet. You could find your own kind, but it was small enough to where you basically had to settle and just make friends with whoever you met. And kind of, you know what I mean? Like it wasn't so vast. And I think now with things being online and with Tucson also being a larger place, it's probably harder for people to, to get to know each other. Because part of the thing with the digital thing is you're always, it's always inducing you to, to keep looking rather than to focus on developing a relationship with the one thing you found. So he makes a great point about the fact that society and culture has changed so much that if you are involved in a counterculture movement like punk, you can find an infinite number of people around the world to interact with now. But back then, you found yourself approaching that guy in the leather jacket and the rabid t-shirt or whatever it was, you know, uh, if, if you knew what true sounds of Liberty TSOL stood for, you know, you could start a conversation with someone and that person might end up being your best friend, might end up being your bass player. So that difference in culture, I'm so starkly reminded of that by your film. 
Yeah, that moment when he explains that so perfectly, it's it was one of those moments where I was like, oh, I was like, oh my gosh. This <laughs> I'm is doing an, something an valuable here. Yes, like yeah. this is going to tie it all. Like, because the whole time I was asking myself, what is this movie really about? I know we're, we're looking back at some good times and you're going to get to learn about a lot of cool bands you've never heard of. But really, what is this movie about? And I really, truly feel like in a pre-digital era, what was around us where we found ourselves that was what we made the best of we didn't know the world we live in now which is to keep looking to keep searching for something even better or a cooler band or a, it just was what is around me right now that i connect to that is going to be my world you you weren't influencing anyone you didn't have a myspace page right there was no <laughs> influencers it was just Oh, it's that guy again, and looks like we're becoming friends here. Yeah, it was just so so much simpler. The film A Tale of Two Houses makes its world premiere at the Loft Cinema on Saturday, September 2nd at 2 p.m. as part of the 2023 Hoko Fest. Director Chris Carlone will be there for a Q&A. There's a link on the Spotlight page at azpm.org. The city of Bisbee is joining an exclusive list of Arizona places officially certified as community wildlife habitats by the National Wildlife Federation. Supporters say this is a major accomplishment for the city of about 5,000 people. As Tony Paniagua reports, it all began with a grassroots movement from just a few. A two-acre property in Bisbee is undergoing a transformation from partly deserted and barren to beneficial and inspirational. The restoration is possible thanks to community commitment and cooperation. It's been guided by a small team of residents with boundless perseverance. You have to start out small and you do have to prove yourself. Like, a lot of these kinds of projects will fall through. They'll lose their momentum. That's Carmen Falcon, one of the co-leads behind Project Wildlife Bisbee. The group's goal is to turn as many spaces as possible into usable habitats for birds, butterflies, and other species. That's accomplished by planting native and drought-tolerant flowers, shrubs, and trees for food and shelter. A source of life-saving water is also added to the garden. Our pollinators are having quite a bit of difficulty keeping up their numbers, so it's about boosting their populations. The three leaders of Project Wildlife Bisbee have been working tirelessly for several months at this section of Vista Park. It's in the Warren District of Bisbee, a few miles southeast of the popular historic downtown that most tourists visit. We went to the city. We had to get approval from them. We really needed to have them as a partner and a backup. But it's not hard to sell the idea of being nice to our pollinators since it really goes all the way down to our food chain. So they immediately backed us up and they gave us the upper vista, which had kind of been a little neglected, to reclaim it with native plants. But the scope of their work goes beyond the park's boundaries. At meetings, farmers markets, social media, and elsewhere, 
the team has been spreading the message to hundreds of residents. Jane Gaffer is one of the other co-leads who volunteers. We've put in about 350 plants, all with individual emitters since then. Been a lot of work. We couldn't have done it without a backhoe. Husband with backhoe, yes. <laughs> and how did you hear about or come up with the idea of Project Wildlife? It was Carmen's fault. She had a sign, Certified Wildlife Garden by the National Wildlife Federation, and I asked her about it. And we thought, oh, wouldn't it be great to have lots of people? And then we went online and learned that actually we could make the city into a community wildlife habitat. With at least 100 gardens on board as of August 1st, the Project Wildlife Bisbee volunteers accomplished this goal, joining a very small list. Their municipality becomes the third officially certified community wildlife habitat in the whole state. Tony, have you ever been given two acres and the money to plant? <laughs> As I say, we wouldn't have done it if we'd have known how much work it was, but thank heavens we didn't know because it's been a blast. The other part of the trio is a retired seventh grade science teacher. I'm Doug Danforth, and I'm, I guess you'd call the biologist for the park and rock hauler. Danforth has also co-authored two books about butterflies, damselflies, and dragonflies. It's just exciting to see how things have taken. You know, we just started planting in March, and it has just responded, even with a poor monsoon like we've had. The gardens look terrific. It's just a joy to come out here. I love it. What's so rewarding is while we're out here working, people walk by and they say, hey, it's looking good. Really like what you're doing. I mean, that's just such a boost. Two of those people are Suzanne Aldridge and Carol Beesham. Aldrich moved to Bisbee 30 years ago. I live about a mile away and walk this route every day. I think it's incredible the volunteers that have just selflessly come out day after day in the heat and transformed it. And it's also going to be developed into a great educational space for the students around here to come. So really looking forward to continuing to watch how it develops. Just so grateful for our community. Her walking partner, Carol Beesham, retired in Bisbee with her husband in the 1990s. I have fallen in love with Bisbee, particularly this neighborhood. As Suzanne said, just walking here and seeing the beauty has just been amazing, absolutely amazing. The work they've put into it, it's just beautiful. It looks like a real botanical garden. I like the, the various rock gardens. I love rocks. When I came to Arizona, I'd never seen so many beautiful rocks. It was just great. Whether it's rocks, plants, water features, or something else, residents are excited about the ongoing metamorphosis at this park and other parts of the city. And in spite of all the long hours and labor, the project's members will have unforgettable memories and stories moving forward. For example, Carmen Falcon remembers what happened after her group got a major grant to buy the first batch of native plants, once their exhilaration had subsided. Everyone woke up in the middle of the night in their own beds going, we don't have water. So Arizona Water came and replumbed things so that we could put get water to the plants free of charge. And then we went in the middle of the night, no, Havelina! So the city 
put up this temporary fencing. So we've had a lot of people get on board. I think we brought in about $17,000 for this project. When you look back at your accomplishments and all that work that you've put in, how are you emotionally? This is how I am emotionally. Holy moly, we did this? You can see some of the wildlife habitat gardens yourself during the Bisbee Bloomers annual garden tour on Saturday, September 2nd. There's more information on the Bisbee Bloomers Facebook page, and we'll also have a link on our website, azpm.org. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Tony Paniagua. In case you were wondering, the other two community wildlife habitats in the state are the community of Ajo and the Sweetwater neighborhood in the Tucson foothills. The Bisbee community received a lot of support from the Arizona Wildlife Federation, and next, Leah Britton will talk with Trika Oshant-Hawkins, who is the group's Conservation Programs Director. Well, hi, I'm Trika Oshant-Hawkins. I work with the Arizona Wildlife Federation. I'm the Conservation Programs Director. Trika, can you tell me a bit about the Wildlife Habitat Garden certifications? Sure. It's the certification program that was started by the National Wildlife Federation. And I work with the Arizona Wildlife Federation. We are an affiliate of National. So that program involves uh, encouraging and educating people how to plant native plant species that uh, help wildlife, whether providing food or shelter, encourages them to also provide water. And when uh, people have those elements in the garden, food, water, shelter, um, and especially in sustainable practices, they can apply through National Wildlife Federation to receive certification. So it's a certification program that um, targets individuals, but also communities. Scientists say it's important to make our gardens more friendly to wildlife. Can you expand on that a little? Oh, absolutely. People, if they're new to an area, they might plant whatever trees or shrubs that are at a local nursery. But when we plant native species, so that's plants that are adapted to the environment in which we live. And here in the Southwest, we certainly have plenty of those. The animals, insects included, that are from our region, they know those plants and they've evolved with them and rely on them for eons. And thus they are adapted to that. They know how to obtain those uh, food sources. And when we plant native species, we're therefore attracting and supporting our native species of animals. When we plant non-natives, they might be lovely, ornamental, but in many cases, one, they're not, especially in our desert, they might not be very drought tolerant, and they might not provide the resources that animals need. And there are some perhaps that do, But compared to native species and the amount of wildlife, including insects, they support, uh, natives are definitely the way to go. So I heard this is a big year for Arizona Wildlife Federation. Can you tell us a bit about that? You bet. It's an amazing year. Yeah, this is our centennial year. That means we have been around for 100 years. That makes Arizona Wildlife Federation the oldest conservation organization in the state. We're even older than National Wildlife Federation. Uh, So it is a big year. We are celebrating. We're recognizing um, all that we've done and the impact that we've had on wildlife and public lands for 100 years. That's amazing. And what other programs is Arizona Wildlife Federation working on? So our programs um, are focused in three main areas, in education, advocacy, and involvement. So we have a program that gets volunteers outside and directly helping wildlife and public lands. That program gets 
volunteers out, boots on the ground, and engaging in the landscape. We've got a program called uh, Becoming an Outdoors Woman, Bow for short, and we have three bow workshops a year that get women outdoors in a comfortable, safe environment and learning skills and gaining confidence in um, outdoor activities. Advocacy, which is also a really important program area, and that's something that we were originally founded on, is advocating uh, for policy that protects, promotes wildlife and public lands, and involving people in advocacy efforts. And speaking of involvement, how can our listeners get involved? We do have a website, azwildlife.org. We have a podcast, comes out twice a month. We have an e-news that uh, keeps people up to date, not just what Arizona Wildlife Federation is up to, but also what's going on with wildlife and habitat throughout the state. And of course, follow us on social media. We've got Facebook, Twitter, um, Instagram. One can reach out to us that way, sign up for our newsletter, and then become aware of the different events, activities, volunteer opportunities. And as you guys cross your centennial, what are some things you're looking forward to? Arizona Wildlife Federation has been around 100 years. We were very successful at that time when we were established. Many wildlife species were on the brink of extinction. We worked really hard to, one, create the Arizona Game and Fish Department, as well as the Arizona Game and Fish Commission, and ensure that wildlife are managed scientifically. And that's a great thing to celebrate, but wildlife and public lands are always under threat. And the good news is that there's something that anyone and everyone can do. And organizations like us, like the Wildlife Federation, are there to help people understand how to get involved, understand the things that they can do, and have a positive benefit on our wildlife and public lands. Thank you to Trika O'Shant-Hawkins, the Conservation Programs Director for the Arizona Wildlife Federation. You can find more information on the Spotlight page at azpm.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show is a production of AZPM. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. The assistant producer is Leah Britton. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.